Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. calls for action and now nip it in the bud well, what i do is uh i look a woman up and down and i say hey how you doing and i hope you're doing well everybody this is jim mccarran's back with the good the bad and the tv on the believe podcast network it's the number one podcast network for professionals sign up sign on subscribe rate us find us on your favorite platform. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1973. Roe v. Wade, Indians at Wounded Knee, UCLA and John Wooden, fainting and vomiting at screenings of The Exorcist, Elvis from Hawaii on TV, watched by more people worldwide than the moon landing. In 1973, the first handheld cell phone call was made in New York. The World Trade Center and the Sears Tower in Chicago are finished off in their respective cities. The Alaskan pipeline begins. Federal Express takes off in Memphis. A meteorite strikes Colorado. Skylab is launched. Lyndon Johnson dies at his Texas ranch. The DEA is founded. Ohio becomes the first state to post metric highway signs. Hip-hop is introduced by DJ Cool Herc, and Richard Nixon begins his troubled second term, marred by an expanding Watergate investigation that will ultimately bring it to a premature end. The hottest thing on TV this summer, in fact, the Watergate hearings. In 1973, and you'll want to take notes here, in the case of Miller versus California, the Supreme Court hands down a decision that establishes what's called the Miller test for determining, yes, obscenity. It has three parts when it comes to something deemed by some as objectionable. One, would the average person applying contemporary community standards find that the thing in question taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest? Two, does the thing in question depict or describe in a patently offensive way sexual conduct or excretory functions as specifically defined by applicable state law? And three, does the thing in question taken as a whole lack serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value? If all three conditions are satisfied, then you got yourself an obscenity. If it's just one or two, well, then you got yourself a party. And good luck with all that. Elsewhere in 1973, the year's most popular tune, sorry to report, that would be the earworm known as Tie a Yellow Ribbon Round the Old Oak Tree, sung by Michael Anthony Cassavetes, Joyce Vincent Wilson, and Telma Hopkins, better known as Tony Orlando and Dawn. 
The tune is adopted by the families of soldiers returning from Vietnam, but its roots are in long-told tales of men coming home from both prison as well as battle with yellow ribbons or, in one version, yellow handkerchiefs, the sign to display at home that loved ones have not forgotten them. Either way, Tie a Yellow Ribbon is a 1973 cultural anthem, thanks to Vietnam. And boy, does America tie more than a few around more than a few trees as the long conflict winds down, as its POWs are released, as the soldiers start to come home, having done their time. This overseas war that has held a nation captive for more than a decade. Stateside in 1973, a whole other kind of war is being fought, this one on the streets and in the workplace and at the family dinner table. It's a cultural war, a social upheaval called the Women's Liberation Movement, which begs the tale of one of the biggest TV events of 1973, perhaps the year's biggest battle in that war. Though how to explain history that starts out as a joke. In the 1930s and 40s, a guy named Bobby Riggs is a top-ranked tennis pro. In fact, he sets a record by winning the men's singles, the men's doubles, and the mixed doubles at Wimbledon in 1939. He's tennis royalty until his 1951 retirement from the game. And then he's a self-confessed hustler and acknowledged gambler after. He spends much of his murderous years in the corporate world but he remains active on the sidelines of tennis, playing in the occasional seniors tournament, organizing exhibition challenges between active and retired pros. He's doing whatever it takes to promote the game and himself. In the early 1970s, in a bid either for reinvention or for attention, or both, Riggs, now in his 50s, sticks a wet finger in the air to see where and how the public winds are blowing and he finds a huge gust called Women's Lib, currently dividing the country. He decides it can sweep him up into notoriety too. Liberation, schmiberation. He begins to make disparaging public remarks about women in his sport of tennis, just as the field is gaining traction and attention of its own, thanks to rising star Billie Jean King and to the 1972 enactment of legislation that she champions, known as Title IX, which guarantees parity and federal funding for school programs, including women's sports. Riggs goes further and touts men's superiority to women in general, both in tennis and in sports and in life. Further poking the zeitgeist bear, he challenges any of tennis's top women, including King, to a tennis match to prove his point to the world. Number two ranked Billie Jean King wisely declines. Number one-ranked Margaret Court, unwisely, does not. And on May 13, 1973, sadly, it's Mother's Day, Court takes to the court for what becomes a match so lopsided, she loses 6-2-6-1, that it comes to be dubbed the Mother's Day Massacre. 55-year-old Bobby Riggs wins. How and why? Most likely because Court underestimates Riggs from the second they meet at the net. Not necessarily as an athlete, but as a wily opponent. Riggs psychs her out from the start, presenting her 
before the match gets underway with Mother's Day flowers, which she accepts with a playful curtsy. It's all fun and games, but it's by his hand, not hers. The toying exacts a psychological toll. Because before a single serve is had in the match, Margaret Court has already demonstrated gratitude and deference, if not subservience. Ed Riggs has shown her to be a woman first, the flowers on Mother's Day, and maybe then a tennis player. He easily wins the match and he points to the victory as proof of male superiority. In its aftermath, he continues to taunt Billie Jean King. I'll play her on clay, on grass, on wood, cement, marble, or on roller skates, he says. He adds, we got to keep this sex thing going. I'm a woman specialist now. Ranked the world's number one female player for the five years leading up to 1973, when she's second to Margaret Court, Billie Jean King ignores every Riggs poke until finally... The Mother's Day Massacre, still fresh in mind. She relents. She's then on the front lines of the women's movement as well as women's tennis. And she accepts the challenge for what she says is the good of women in sports as well as for the women in the movement. Momentum for which she fears could ebb in the wake of Court's loss and Riggs' showboating. Parenthetically, the massive attention Riggs is getting, which stands to increase seismically if she accepts his challenge, which will then benefit the world of female sports in the process, is not lost on Billie Jean King. A September date is set for a $100,000 winner-take-all showdown, anointed the Battle of the Sexes, to be held in Houston's Astrodome. And then a frenzy begins on all fronts alternately framing the event as both a heated grudge match and an international referendum on gender against the backdrop of the biggest cultural conflict of the decade. That it's all to play out gladiator style in an arena that opens only a few years ago as the eighth wonder of the world contributes. Writes Bruce J. Shulman in his book, The 70s, The Great Shift in American Culture, Society, and Politics, the match quickly becomes a media circus. He points out that ABC TV network pays more than $700,000 for broadcast rights for the event, which will be shown live in prime time, a fee it easily earns back with a million-dollar advertising fee. Both amounts, records for an event of this kind. The Battle of the Sexes is shaping up to be a global media and entertainment bonanza. Home viewing parties are all set up over the country. Astrodome tickets are impossible to find. Come match time, 30,472 spectators are on hand in Houston. It's the largest audience ever to see a tennis match in the United States. King, well, she enters the Astrodome on a feathered litter, a la Cleopatra, carried by four bare-chested musclemen dressed as ancient slaves. Riggs is right behind her, in a rickshaw, drawn by a flock of shapely models. Trying once again for the psych-out strategy, Riggs presents King with an oversized sugar daddy lollipop, 
Parenthetically, we should note that Riggs's entire appearance on this day, which includes a labeled jacket that he's paid $50,000 to wear during the game, during the match, is indeed sponsored by Sugar Daddy. But Billie Jean King is ready for him. She responds in kind with an offering of a squealing piglet, thus marking him as the chauvinist pig that his words and deeds have shown him to be. Color commentary comes from the broadcast booth courtesy of ABC Master Sports showman Howard Cosell, then looming large on ABC's hit franchise Monday Night Football. He contributes to the carnival atmosphere as a sort of Astrodome barker, while at the same time he clearly demonstrates a lack of awareness of what is underscoring the match. Because while he makes references to how Riggs plays, his references to King involve how she looks. And in the booth itself, he dismisses and condescends to young tennis star Rosie Casals, who's been enlisted to work alongside him, to his irritation. All this said, when the glitter settles and the music fades and the crowd quiets and a tennis match begins, Riggs never stands a chance. The 55-year-old proves to be all show to 29-year-old King's all business. At one point, he's even forced to lose the $50,000 sugar daddy jacket due to the exertion. In front of a worldwide TV viewing audience estimated at 90 million, Billie Jean King wins in three sets, 6-4-6-3-6-3. It's an equal parts tennis, moral, and symbolic victory. Gender equality, at least as decried by Riggs and his easily stirred, easily led supporters, is no longer a punchline, thanks to a tennis match on television. King later says, I thought it would set us back 50 years if I didn't win. It would ruin the women's tour, and it would affect all women's self-esteem. When it comes to the battle of the sexes, ABC Television's a winner too. It makes a mint in ad revenue, and it derives a ton of publicity for its just-starting new fall season. Though, spoiler alert, not a single new ABC series that premieres this September survives the season. Some don't even survive the year. Overall, it's a primitive, though telling, encouraging early look at the concept of pay-per-view and its confirmation that sports can draw huge crowds on primetime TV. Just as the quadrennial Olympic Games have been proven, athletics can be commodified, and the TV networks are realizing that they don't have to wait four years at a time to cash in. After the Battle of the Sexes, Bobby Riggs makes the most of his renewed celebrity with a volley of TV series and personal appearances. Conveniently, he also publicly acknowledges the error of his chauvinistic thinking, giving him another few bites of that publicity apple. Riggs consistently smashes rumors, however, of having thrown the match, both for financial gain and to cover old gambling losses. He develops and maintains a close relationship with Billie Jean King until his death from prostate cancer in 1995. They speak the day before, and according to King, her last words to Bobby Riggs are, I love you. 
By the way, two movies are eventually made about the 1973 Battle of the Sexes. A TV movie in 2001 with Holly Hunter and Ron Silver and a 2017 big screen treatment from Emma Stone and Steve Carell. Neither effectively conveys the circus that the match creates. Perhaps because, as Riggs himself would probably say, no one can be Bobby Riggs but Bobby Riggs. But also because the story of the Battle of the Sexes is very much a story of its time, the 1970s, a time of escalating divide and discourse hear about gender, but one that can be fleshed out in a sporting event rather than the bloodshed that later social differences create. Wright Shulman in his 70s book, quote, King's victory marked a watershed in the expansion of women's athletics in the United States. But the battle of the sexes dramatized far more than women's achievement in sport. It also signaled the arrival of the women's movement as a broad cultural force. You gotta believe. And P.S., tie a yellow ribbon? Legend has it that the song was first offered to Ringo Starr, but reps for his record company called it ridiculous and said that its writers should be ashamed. I'm Jim McCarrens. We'll serve up another edition next week. <laughs> I'm coming home, I've done my time Now I've got to know what is and isn't mine If you receive my letter telling you I'd soon be free Then you'll know just what to do if you Stay on the bus.
Now the whole damn bus is cheering And I can't believe I see A hundred yellow ribbons around the Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.